So the first person is a guy that I met in Mexico um, when I was in college on a missions trip. And this guy had absolutely nothing. I mean, he had very, very little. But he was perhaps the most joyful, content person I've ever met. Second person is a friend of mine who is who's very wealthy and well off. But he's also very, very generous. You would not know that he is as wealthy as he is. I only know because of kind of strange circumstances where I found out. But this guy is one of the most content, joy-filled people I know as well. The third person is a gal I know who always seems to be struggling financially. And as you can imagine, is quite discontent in life. And the fourth person I know is a guy who is also very wealthy, and he uses his money to try to, quote-unquote, fix problems all the time. And he lives a miserable life. He is miserable inside. Now, it's fascinating because all four of these people are in four different financial situations with four vastly different levels of contentment in their life that has nothing to do with how much money they make. You see, words are immensely important, and we are talking about money today. And Ecclesiastes has a fascinating perspective on money, probably different than any other sermon you'll ever hear on money. So I'm excited about it today just because it's, it's an angle that I think is, is much more palatable as well as just, just interesting to think about. But I want to use the right language around it. So, and I want to start with this because the church, big C church, churches in general, pastors, preachers have used the language of blessing a lot around it. And it is a biblical word. But blessing, when we think about it today in 2023, we think of cause and effect. We think of preachers who have wrongfully said, hey, give to God and you will be financially blessed. That's a bunch of hogwash. That's called the prosperity gospel, which is not a gospel at all. You see, we shouldn't have to qualify a, a, a word or a phrase so when we say you'll be blessed if you give financially, that is true, but we shouldn't have to then explain, oh, it might not be financially, it might be in other ways like this or this or this or that. Okay, then, then let's find different language that's going to be more helpful. I think the language we should use, which is also a very biblical word, is contentment. Contentment. I think it's much more helpful given the spiritual abuse we've seen within the church over the last several years. See, contentment, the effect isn't monetary. The effect is well-being and peace of mind. See, what, what people often mean when they say, hey, you'll be blessed financially if you give to God, is what they mean is, is, is contentment. And as we saw earlier with the four people that I told you about briefly, contentment can be found in all situations financially. And that's what God desires for us. So if you'll turn to Ecclesiastes 5 with me, we're going to look at some different passages in Ecclesiastes 4 through 6 within those chapters. And Ecclesiastes, if you're looking for it, if you have a paper Bible, it's right after Proverbs, 
pretty much right in the middle. You can kind of miss it, though. So Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And I'm going to give you the answer key before we start. Sound good? All right. That's what I'm talking about. I'm glad my wife isn't the only one who's getting people to interact with them this morning. So great job. Uh, All right. Two summaries of the perspective we see from Ecclesiastes on money. And that's number one, your relationship with money will determine your contentment. And number two, your relationships will determine how you steward money. So with that in mind, we're going to look at number one here. Your relationship with money will determine your contentment. And we're going to go through the grid we've been going through in Ecclesiastes because I think it's a helpful way to understand it. And so the first thing we're going to look at is the sobering reality under the sun, so to speak. This reality of looking at the world through the lens that's quite blurry, kind of keeping God out of your mind. And that's what Solomon did, who wrote this much of his early life. And so his first thing that he says in Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 12 is essentially this. Treat money, if you treat money as God, you're going to be left starving. So Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 12. The one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This too is futile. When good things increase, the ones who consume them multiply. What then is the profit of the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. So if you look here, verse 10, he's saying, if you love silver, if you love wealth, if you love money, you are going to be insatiable. It will never be enough for you. When you treat money, when you treat possessions like God, they don't satisfy us. Why? Because only God can satisfy us. Imagine you're starving. Imagine you're literally starving. You haven't eaten in days and you decide I'm going to go buy a bunch of oxygen tanks. And so you, you use all of those oxygen tanks. Guess what? You're going to be just as starving as you were before you bought those oxygen tanks. This is what we do when we treat money as God. It leaves us starving. This is just as true when you are poor, rich, or anywhere in between. It just looks different. You know, as Kevin Lambert, one of our elders, said, for both people, whether you're rich or poor, money is controlling you when it's God. Money is controlling you. See, both people, rich, poor, and everyone in between, are not looking for money. They're looking for satisfaction. They're looking for peace. They're looking for contentment. And only God himself can give you that. Verse 11 here, he's saying, hey, even if you gain wealth, it actually tends to create more hassle and problems in your life. True, right? Many of us know that to be true. People try to take advantage of you or they try to take it from you or the government tries to take it from you. You get more taxes, right? Or you have more, just more responsibility, So when you treat money as God, it not only leaves you dissatisfied, it leaves you frustrated. And then in verse 12, if you treat money as God, it leaves you starving for sleep, for rest, for peace, for joy. 
See, when something as trivial as money becomes your God, rest physically and mentally can be quite the battle. Think of the sleepless nights that you perhaps have had because you had no idea how you were going to pay for this thing. I remember a few years ago, uh, I had my appendix taken out randomly. Um, wasn't planning on that, right? And most people don't when they have their appendix taken out. And I got the doctor bill, and I was like, I don't know I'm going to pay for that. And I started freaking out. I had some sleepless nights because I was just trying to figure out how to pay for it. I honestly just wasn't trusting God with it if, <laughs> as well. I wasn't just trying to fix it. I was, I was being anxious, overly anxious about it. And, you know, uh, some, somehow I just am still learning, still trying to learn this from God that, you know, he is going to take care of things. I just need to be content with where he has me and trust him. But I lost some sleep. See, when money takes the place of God in your life, you have those nights a lot. But here is the reality over the sun, the reality of bringing God into the picture. And that's this. If you treat money as a gift from God, you'll be grateful, not starving. So Ecclesiastes 5, just a few verses down, 18 to 20. Here's what I've seen to be good. It is appropriate to eat, drink, and experience good in all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life God has given him, because that is his reward. Furthermore, everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth he has also allowed him to enjoy them, take his reward, and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God, for he does not often consider the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. So in verse 19, it teaches that God is the giver of any riches and wealth that you get, any cent that you get. Every cent that you get is a gift from God. And he continues in verse 19 by teaching that any enjoyment or contentment that you experience from money is also a gift. So God both gives us every cent that we get and any pleasure we receive from that money. And the first step towards a good relationship with money is recognizing that every cent that you make is a gift from God. And you might be like, well, Matt, I worked hard for that money. Perhaps you did. But God set up the system that made the work you did even worth monetizing. You see, the sooner we humble ourselves and lay down our pride and live a financially grateful life, the sooner money will actually start to draw you to God, not drive you away from Him. There's a reason that Charles Dickens' The Christmas Carol has lasted the test of time. It's because at its core, the concepts in it are biblical. Ebenezer Scrooge treated money as God, and he was rich, but he was miserable. Whereas Bob Cratchit treated money as a gift from God, and he was poor, but he was very grateful and content. If we can push push past the extremes of, of that classic tale for a minute and just make this practical. When you receive your next paycheck or your next auto deposit into your bank account, first, just stop and thank God for it. 
resist the urge that we so often have to start stressing over how much that paycheck won't cover, right? Resist the urge to start dreaming over what you're going to spend it on and train yourself, discipline yourself to first stop and thank God. All of it's a gift from him. Every time you receive money, be grateful because it's actually a reminder of the greatest gift of grace that we get from God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. See, the more we can grow in thankfulness towards money, towards relationships, towards everything in our lives, towards possessions, the more thankful when we can become in the little things, the more thankful we'll actually be come for the most important thing, the gospel, that Jesus came and died and rose from the dead to give us new life and give us his Holy Spirit and give us eternal life forever. You see, when we start treating money as a gift from God, it actually helps us grow in our gratefulness and contentment with our whole relationship with God as well. So this leads to the hope-filled reality under Christ, under the S-O-N, this reality of God with us that we live in today. And that's this. If you treat money as if it's God's, because it is, you'll be content. Hebrews 13.5. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Now listen to the beautiful flow of thought in this short yet really packed verse. He, he says, keep your life free from the love of money. So he's saying, hey, fight to not let your heart love money. That's what Ecclesiastes said. It, you know, we just looked at it. Treat, if you treat money as God, you're going to be starving. So, so fight to not let your heart love money. Instead, be satisfied with what you have. So instead of loving money, enjoy what God has already given you. Well, didn't Ecclesiastes just teach us that? If you treat money as a gift from God, you'll be grateful. And then the key to shifting your heart from loving money and to enjoying money as a gift from God is contentment from the assurance that God is constantly with you and cares about you. God will never leave you. He will never forsake you financially. This doesn't mean you won't go through hard times financially. You probably will. But it does mean that regardless, he will walk through those times with you, the good and the bad. See, the goal is contentment financially, which only comes through relationship with Jesus Christ. And the only way we can have this contentment, regardless of our financial situation, is to treat money as God's not yours. You know, you can just listen to this scripture here, Psalm 24.1, take this in. The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. Another short but packed verse, every single thing, every single person belongs to God. So we can only become content financially by living like it's all God's because it is. Now, I struggled on early in my life as a pastor to give generously to the church that I was working at, if I can just be completely honest with you all, because it is cyclical, right? 
And, and that's how I viewed it. I'm like, well, I'm just paying my salary, right? So what's the point? But when I started to view money as God's and not mine, when God got a hold of my heart through some of the scriptures I've already shared this morning and will share later, I started to give to the church that I was working at generously because my mindset sh- set shifted. I wasn't giving to the church that I was working at in a cyclical. I'm giving to God first and foremost. So regardless of how, what, what's going on there, real practically, I'm giving to you, Lord. And it was, it's yours to begin with. You know, Dr. John White said this, freedom does not consist in doing what I want to do, but in doing what I was designed to do. Now that could be applied to a ton of areas of life, but apply that to money. Freedom is not doing what you want to do with money. It's actually doing what you were designed to do with money, which is to steward it as God's, because it's His anyway. So, Back to our two summaries of the perspectives in Ecclesiastes on money. Number one, your relationship with money will determine your contentment. Now, let's look at number two. Your relationships will determine how you steward money. So back to Ecclesiastes. We're going to look at chapter 4, verse 8 now. Ecclesiastes 4, 8. And while you're going there, here's the sobering reality under the sun. Money is meaningless without relationships. 4.8. It says, There is a person without a companion, without even a son or a brother, and though there is no end to all his struggles, his eyes are still not content with riches. Who am I struggling for, he asks, and depriving myself of good things? This too is futile and a miserable task. So here you got this guy who has no family. He's got no friends whatsoever, yet... He's wealthy, he's rich, and his conclusion is, what am I doing with my life? This is a miserable existence. He literally says, who am I struggling for and depriving myself of good things? This guy discovered the hard way how God designed him. See, God designed all of us to need relationships. We are made in God's image. And so because we are made in his image, we are relational by nature. God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have forever and will forever forever live in this inter-Trinitarian, loving, peaceful, perfect relationship. And I'm not going to go into all the ins and outs of the Trinity this morning. We'll save that for another day. But the point is that God himself is relational. On top of that, God said in Genesis, it's not good for man to be alone. We were designed for relationship. Riches without anyone else to serve or anyone else to enjoy them with are absolute meaningless, futile, fleeting. The Hebrew word, hevel, just means you take a breath on a cold day. You see it and then it's gone like that. That's what money is without people to serve them with or enjoy them with. And I love this angle on money from Solomon. It's not the typical angle you hear in Scripture. But here's what he's saying. Money is intrinsically and inseparably tied to relationships. And that leads to the reality over the sun. 
And that's that relationships are greater than money. The very next verse, Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up, but pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they, keep, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. So there it is. There's the classic wedding passage for you. Didn't think you were coming to a wedding this morning, did you? But, rightfully so, that's a good application, a great application of this passage. But notice that in context, it's not about marriage. It's about relationships of all kinds. It's about companionship. And in contrast to verse 8, verses 9 through 12, is the view over the Son, of, of God over us. And he's saying, hey, you want to discover meaning in this life under the Son? Then don't look to money to give you meaning, look to relationships to give meaning to your money. Verse 9 uses financial language even for relationships. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. Or, put differently, a good return on their investment. See, it's financial language for relationships. In verse 12, it says, hey, one friend is incredible, but a group of friends is darn near invincible. And in my life, I can attest to that reality a thousand times over. True friendship far exceeds anything money can buy. So the next point just makes sense. If relationships are greater than money, then relationships will drive our money habits. And so here's the hope-filled reality under Christ. Relationships determine how we steward money. So let's look at Matthew 6, 19 to 21. And I think I have a slide for that one. Yes? No? Next? There we go. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 12. Two are better. Sorry, that's not where we're at. Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Sorry. Psych. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus is saying essentially, get this, the true test of what someone actually loves is found in their bank history. Where your heart is, where your affections are, where your love is, there your money will be also. Show me your bank transactions from this past year and I'll tell you what and who you love. That's what Jesus is saying. In Ecclesiastes, we learn that relationships are greater than money, but here we learn from Jesus that how we steward our money actually reveals what relationships are most important to us, if relationships are important at all. So how is this a hope-filled reality, you might ask? It seems a little more terrifying than hope-filled. Well, it's hope-filled because if you love Jesus and are giving generously to Jesus and to others, your treasure is truly where your heart is. So be encouraged. 
But it's also hope-filled for those who truly love Jesus and aren't giving generously to Jesus. How is that hope-filled? It's hope-filled because it's not too late. See, Jesus is inviting you to put your money where your heart is. And when you do that, it will lead to contentment. You know, one time I had a family who was very, very involved in the church I was working at come up to me and, and they told me, hey, we just started giving to the church. And it honestly kind of shocked me. And I, I've never and I, I haven't here either seen what people give or, or don't give or who gives what, that sort of thing. I don't see any of that for good reason. But it shocked me, so I just listened, but they were talking to me about the contentment and peace in their minds and their hearts and their family that they were experiencing as a result of it. And they also shared how it was difficult. It's been quite the adjustment for them. But they were experiencing the quote I read earlier, that there's nothing more freeing than when you're doing what you were designed to do. See, when you love God with everything, it includes your money. There's no way around it. Your relationships will determine how you steward money. So if you're listening to this and you are an atheist, it's still true that your relationships will determine and do determine how you steward your money. So here's these two summaries again. Your relationship with money will determine your contentment and your relationships will determine how you steward your money. Now, I want to pull over for a second and give a brief giving update, which we do once a month around here. So here's where we're at, and our fiscal year ends at the end of June. We run from July 1st to June 31st. There's 31 days in June or 30? Anyone? Just help me out. I'm going blank. 30 to June 30th. Thank you. So, wow. That's where I'm at right now. Um, but I want to read to you from uh, Randy Shaver, our elder and finance team leader, on the main reason he believes we're behind, and, and I agree with him. So summer traveling, he said, in the summer and early fall months of last year, the average giving per family was down fairly significantly as compared to the winter months, even more than years before. In fact, we had one month where the contributions were half of the budgeted amount. Unfortunately, that slow start to the fiscal year has weighed in our ability to get to full, to full budget level giving. We attribute much of that shortfall to lower Sunday attendance and due to families traveling on vacations, which is understandable. So here's what he's saying. We started out slower. Now, our finance team has been working hard on a budget proposal for this coming year, which will start the day after June 30th. Got it. And they are uh, working to cut the budget a bit for next year. But I'm hopeful. And here's why I'm hopeful. Because if you've been here for any amount of time, even if a short amount of time, you know that there is great morale and excitement around Stonebridge Church right now. And so we are creatively focus, focusing on the things financially and otherwise, that are really important to us for this coming year. But I'm hopeful because people's hearts are here at Stonebridge Church. And more and more people's hearts by the week, by the day, are here at Stonebridge Church. I know it. I see it. I live it. I breathe it. But ultimately, I'm hopeful because God 
is clearly up to something here and it's palpable. I haven't always been able to say that with full assurance. I'm telling you, God is doing some incredible things here, changing lives and hearts. So I'm hopeful. So I want to give you an invitation. And I am unashamedly inviting you to give to Stonebridge Church today. I'd also like to say that people are asking for money all the time, and it annoys the snot out of me too. Okay? I mean, they are. I hear you. So I'm not, I'm not going to be pushy. But I am, I am inviting you. And invite is the proper term. I'm inviting you. If you consider this your church home or your church family, and if you're visiting today and you have a church home or church family, I would invite you to, to give generously to your local church, your church family. And if, this, if you're a visitor, we don't ask visitors to provide the meal. You don't do that in your home. Why would we do that here? If you're just checking things out, that's great. Forget about basically everything else I'm going to say today. But here's the thing. Here's the reality. Because I've been, I've been around the church life my whole life, and I've heard a lot of messages on giving, and I've been to churches where they give a lot of messages on giving. This is only the second one I've given in eight years. That isn't enough, actually, because I haven't discipled you well enough in how to manage the money that God has given us. And so I actually apologize for that. But today, I want to give you an invitation I want to try to convince you to take Jesus up on his invitation. You see, Jesus invites us to a life of contentment, regardless of where we're at financially. And he invites us to a life of giving to God as he gave his son for you. This isn't duty. We don't do this to get to heaven. You cannot buy your way into heaven. We do this out of delight and out of joy. This is a response to the good news of Jesus Christ. And you might think, yeah, okay, but I have a hard time giving to a church because I don't know where it's going. Well, the invitation is first to shift your mindset. You remember my story? See, when my mindset changed from what it was going towards and instead who it was going to, it really helped my heart, really set me free to give generously to my local church, my church family. But it's not just a blind giving, though, that I'm asking you to do. Let me tell you what you're giving to when you give to Stonebridge Church. And I think this is so encouraging. So for every 14, sorry, every $100 you give to Stonebridge, $14 of that goes to missions around the world, 14%. See, we're living out as a church the same principle as giving to God of our first and our best as we're asking you to do. That missions money goes to help with short-term trips that Randy talked about last week. Other efforts to, to introduce people to Jesus in countries where people don't even have Bibles, don't even know the name of Christ. When you give to Stonebridge, you enable Bible studies, counseling, and family life to happen in these facilities. Children are loved on and taught the Bible at age-appropriate levels. That's happening as we speak. 
third through 12th graders on Wednesday nights during the school year. I loved on and taught the Bible and drawn near to Jesus. Our home for a while, men's shelter, is literally changing lives holistically. I'm literally looking at some people who have been changed because of that ministry. When you give to Stonebridge, you're showing, you're helping us show our community and our surrounding area that we love them and that Jesus loves them through efforts like Rock the Block, where we give out school supplies and Saturday, where we had inflatables in here to just say to families, hey, we love you and Jesus loves you. And yes, it does go to staff salaries. But why do we pay staff here? In order to free us up to love, serve, and guide you as you walk with Jesus. And we take that calling and responsibility and weight incredibly seriously. You're giving to the worship music experience that you just got a few minutes ago here on Sunday mornings, and other worship nights and settings throughout the week. And I could just keep going on and on and on. But if you trust Stonebridge to be your family, then, then why would you not trust them with the money that God has just given you on loan? You might think, where do I start? I've never given regularly to a church before. And I would say a good starting point would be 10%. And here's why. Look at Leviticus 27.30 with me on the screen. We got that? Yep. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. Now, tithe literally means 10%, as spelled out in other verses in the law, in the Old Testament. And I used to, when I saw this verse, I used to give the excuse, well, that was for them, not for us. Randy Alcorn kicked my butt one day when I was reading the treasure principle, and he said, it seems fair to ask, God, do you really expect less of me who has your Holy Spirit within and lives in the wealthiest society in human history than you demanded of the poorest Israelite? Whew. See, 10%, I think, should just be the floor, not the ceiling. However, if, you, if right now you're like, but I'm not giving anything, then start with 2%. Jump to 5% next year and work your way up. See, God loves a cheerful giver, we see in Scripture. So we don't need to just do this because I heard a message today and feel like I have to. No, we should do it out of delight. And so I invite you to do that. Very practically, we have offering boxes in the back and you can give online on our website. But let me end with two practical analogies to try to, to, try to just help your heart around this whole concept of financially giving to God and to a church family in particular. So imagine, imagine that you're between um, living arrangements and you have an apartment that's going to open up in a month and your aunt and uncle invite you to live with them for a month. They're like, hey, just stay with us. You got a steady job. Come on over. You can live with us for a month. Who in their right mind would not at bare minimum give their aunt and uncle a gift card on the way out. I mean, you'd probably do more than that to contribute as you lived there for a month. So, if you're part of a church family, 
it would be simply logical to contribute to the family. Let me give you another example. Imagine you have a a steady job, and even so, your family is struggling to put food on the table. But you go to some concert, and they invite you to give $36 a month to help a struggling kid in another country. You're struggling to put food on the table, but you decide to do that. Now, that's the right heart, okay? But it's the wrong priority. People love to give to nonprofit side efforts like that. Here's what I'm getting at, okay? And those things are fantastic. Those things are great, actually. But it actually makes no sense to give to those, but none or little to, to your church family. Your church family should be your priority when you're giving to God, just like if you're struggling. And our church is not making budget right now. I wouldn't say we're struggling, but we're not making budget then why would we not give to our church family? Let me end with Jesus' invitation from Matthew eleven twenty eight to 29. And I want to give this invitation, because I know this has been heavy on money. I want to give this invitation to anyone here who doesn't know Christ. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly, and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If you don't know Christ, take him up on his invitation and start relationship with him. Forget all the stuff I said about money today. But if you do know Christ, I want to give you Jesus' same invitation applied to money. And I want you to hear this well if you do follow Christ. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened by money, and I will give you contentment. Take up my money and give it back to me because I sacrificially gave my life for you, and you will find contentment in your soul. Let's pray. Jesus, I just thank you for your word. And I thank you so much for Ecclesiastes. I thank you for the time we've gotten to spend in the book of Ecclesiastes and all that we've learned. And I pray, Jesus, that you would give us a generous heart because you have a generous heart. I pray that you would forgive us for the times where we have just not been generous. And I thank you that you invite us to be generous. You don't, you don't go, hey, you're not being generous. I don't know. I don't know about you today. No, you love us the same no matter what. We, we've never been more loved than we are right now. And so I pray that that reality, that gospel truth, that we were dead in our sin and couldn't, earn anything from God, but yet Jesus, you came and gave yourself for us the best gift. You gave generously to us. I pray that that good news, you love us no matter what. We've never been more loved than we are right now. Would lead us to live a life of financially being generous and that you would give us financial contentment no matter how much is sitting in that bank account. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.